if big assets to achievement and peak performance are routine, controlling situations, discipline, conscientiousness, those are also qualities that can fuel pretty severe mental illness. Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus and joined as always by my good friend and colleague, Brad Stolberg. Our aim on this podcast is to have nuanced, evidence-based conversations on topics that impact performance. That could be in life, in the workplace, or on the athletic field. Performance is performance, and that's what we're going to talk about. Brad, what's the topic for today? We are going to be discussing the relationship between high achievement, striving, accomplishment, performance, and anxiety, depression, and obsessive compulsive disorder. And to set the stage a little bit, last week, the New York Times ran a profile entitled Chelsea Sidero Conquered Kona, Then the Real Struggles Returned. And for those that are unfamiliar with the sport of triathlon, Kona is the world championships, and Chelsea is the reigning world champion. So she is the best swim, run, biker in the world at the longest distance event that they compete for at a world championship level. So really, superwoman, if there is one in endurance sport. Shortly after she won the world championship, she descended into a pretty vicious spiral of anxiety and panic. And um, Kudos to Chelsea, who we both know a little bit for sharing her story, and kudos to the New York Times for treating it so well. So our goal here isn't to analyze this story, um, but really just to use it as a, as a springboard for this broader conversation on a topic that is really important and not too often discussed, which is if big assets to achievement and peak performance are routine, controlling situations, discipline conscientiousness, those are also qualities that can fuel pretty severe mental illness. Yeah, I like to think of it, the thing that makes us great can often get in the way. And I know this from personal experience and experience working with with athletes as well, is that those qualities you talked about, that extreme level of discipline, the ability to control your environment, um, the ability to kind of like single-mindedly focus and almost obsess over something can make you really freaking good, especially in endurance sports where essentially, you know, whether it's triathlon or cycling or running or whatever have you, um, the payoff is essentially accumulating a large amount of work, almost like single-mindedly focused on it over a very long period of time. And, and that leads to performance gains. And the hardest thing I think about this is that as an endurance athlete, especially these attributes are celebrated. And I'll, I'll broaden out. It's not just as an endurance athlete. I think culturally, they are celebrated. So if we look at the workplace, the kind of go all in hustle culture, um, you know, work until you can't is kind of commonplace in, in the U.S. If we look at education, like the striving for 
you know, being in the top of your class to get into a good school is part of the culture. And in fact, there's some data that shows that, again, the thing that makes us great, that leads us to that great GPA and SAT score in, in college also is the thing that me- makes us miserable. And we're seeing that um, part of, again, a smaller part, but part of the teenage um, mental health crisis is uh, due to kind of this crazy obsessive focus that just isn't sustainable. So I, I think that's what we're trying to get at here, Brad, is we have this tension that is re- that makes things 10 times harder to deal with, which is the thing that fuels your greatness often can be the thing that like drives you off the cliff or gets in the way and then when you you feel that moment of like, okay, I'm in a bad spot, whether that's depression, anxiety, OCD, or some sort of mental health thing, the tools that you've relied on to get through these challenging times in the past, which is like put your head down and work or what have you, backfire. And that's what makes this so freaking tricky to to kind of deal with. So I think that it's worth separating depression from OCD and anxiety. These are all syndromes and they're very closely related. Um, but I, I think that they're, they, they fall into two distinct branches of the tree. And I think that their causes in high performers could be a, a little bit different. So let me take a stab at this. Depression, feelings of meaninglessness, um, lack of purpose, Sadness that is not really even sadness. It's painful how little anything matters and how bad one feels. Um, Lethargy, apathy, no energy. uh, Colors just turn to gray. And I think with high performers, what often happens with depression is one of two things. One is that we tie our identity too closely to our pursuits and we get on this roller coaster ride of highs, which is great. But then when the lows come, they're really low. And um, it's just really hard for our, our, our nervous systems to ride that roller coaster without at some point just checking out. And, and that's one time that I think depression strikes. And the other time is um, if you're constantly working at a nine out of 10 or 10 out of 10, and you're really amped up and you're just adrenaline, all systems go. Uh, eventually that switch flames out. And a lot of people, there's this pathway from burnout to depression. And I think that what often happens is when you try to work your way through burnout, you end up depressed. Um, And these are real neurological, uh, neurochemical switches that that flip in the brain. And um, you go from fight to to fight to maybe flight to just give up. And, And that can be when depression sets in. Whereas anxiety is really around trying to control situations that can't be controlled or trying to answer questions that can't be answered and then escalating levels of angst, panic, restlessness, pain because you can't control those situations or or you can't answer those questions. So link it back to high performers. Well, you need some level of identity pursuit fusion to be great at what you do. You want to control your environment to be great at what you do. And you want to leave no stone unturned 
and no potential performance question unanswered to be great at what you do. And oh, by the way, if you approach greatness at what you do, you're going to be working really hard all the time in high energy, high adrenaline situations. So it really is kind of a perfect biological storm to set you up for experiencing depression or anxiety if you are also a really high performer, high striver. And I know that you've seen this in a lot of athletes, as have I, but I've also seen this in the corporate world. I've seen this with entrepreneurs. You hear about this with artists all the time. Um, So this is not just a physiological thing that, that relates to sport and using one's body. This is really about caring deeply about what you do and trying to be great at it. And like you said, I think that it's both the traits that help make you great are also the traits that set you up for failure and the traits that you need to develop to be great are the same traits that can get in your way when it comes to mental health. Absolutely. And one caveat I want to put on here, because I think there's important, there's really importance here, is that often we talk about mental health and depression and anxiety or OCD and what have you. The reaction is for someone to be like, oh, I don't have OCD, so I'm not going to worry about that. But what I like to say here is like there's shades of gray on here. So you might not have obsessive compulsive disorder, but you might have like a high tendency towards like perfectionism where, you know, if something doesn't go perfect or within your control, you still feel like anxiety around that. And I think that's what you're getting at from that depression versus anxiety side is those are kind of two of the typical responses even if we aren't clinically diagnosed OCD or clinically diagnosed anxious anxiety disorder or depressive disorder is that sometimes like we default to those kind of paths um, based on kind of the environments that we're kind of pushed in when we're pursuing something at the highest, highest level. Um, so I think that's kind of the messiness that we're dealing with. One other addition, too, to to really try to um, paint the whole picture here is perhaps another driving force is that people that struggle with feelings of existential distress or fears of death and dying or fears of not being able to control things, fears of loss, very human things perhaps instead of confronting these skillfully, often with the help of teachers, therapists, friends, community members, really high performers just numb them away by throwing themselves completely into their pursuit. So training your ass off to be the best athlete in the world or to start a company, you don't have much open time and space to think about how no one's going to remember you when you die. A really uncomfortable feeling in thought. But when that championship race is over and suddenly you're not training for three weeks because your coach tells you that your body needs time to recover and you have this chasm of open space, well, you can't deal with these kinds of intrusive thoughts in the way that you always have, which is numb them away or um, just throw yourself into your pursuits. And even this is on a spectrum. So there's a a famous book called The Denial of Death. And in it, the author argues that we all throw ourselves into these big grand projects to help us cope with the fear of death. And this is really good because if we didn't, then humanity would just stagnate, right? Humans are the only species 
that we're aware of that knows that we're going to die. And um, that's a real challenging thing. But I think that sometimes that fear gets really, really big and we just keep throwing ourselves into projects. But then eventually when there's a gap, that fear or the fear of loss or the fear of insignificance or irrelevance, whatever it is, it rears its ugly head. And if our normal coping mechanism is just to numb ourselves with striving and performance and we can't or that's not available, then those things can bubble over. So there's nothing abnormal about having these questions, but what's abnormal or what can become abnormal is when sometimes they're unanswerable and certain people can't take that and they keep using the tools that they have in sport or in, in the creative world or wherever it is to try to like get to the bottom of it, but there is no bottom. And then you end up in a spiral of intrusive thoughts or anxiety or depression. And you know, one place you often see this in sport is after a major injury or retirement, right? And there's actually research on this that shows that it is a feeling often felt like a loss, a loss of self or some sort of depressive life, like episode or sometimes full-blown depression. Um, and that is often because like the thing that we're associated with, the thing that we've tied our ad- identity to, the thing that we've used in your words to kind of like numb and cope with some of these feelings or existential, um, you know, dread is now not front and center in our world. And that loss makes it where our, our, the thing that we use to, you know, get through those feelings is no longer there. So we feel kind of lost and fragmented and alone and Uncon- like we've lost control and all sorts of crazy stuff like that. And and I think what we're getting at here is that we're looking for what I'll just call that middle path or that flexibility because it's like we're not saying, hey, don't tie your sense of self to like some, some sort of pursuit. Like in many ways of a, a, a vibrant intrinsically motivated pursuit is what helps us deal with and like navigate life in a successful way. Um, And we're not saying, you know, like only develop, uh, you know, again, this kind of secure attachment and no flexibility or cement ourselves. What we're trying to get at is almost that middle path of like, we need robustness and flexibility. We need to be secure but not totally cemented like in that, that, that path. And that's really freaking hard to do. And I think that if you are someone that is a striver and a high performer and a pusher, I think that it just calls for intentionality to look the other way and potentially preventative care. And whether that is to join a support group, whether that is to seek therapy or coaching, um, even before like you enter crisis mode, uh, I think that that's really important. I wish that I would have seen a therapist before I had full-blown OCD and depression because I think that maybe I wouldn't have had I had some of these tools um, instead of just throwing myself into work and not, 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 not thinking about these things until suddenly that's all that I could think about. You, you know, one thing I want to say there is often the fear, and I know this because I had this fear myself, often the fear is, especially in high strivers or pushers, is is you kind of get latch on to the idea that, oh, my discipline, my single-minded focus is the thing that makes me good. If I go see a therapist or if I get treatment or if I take some sort of you know, anti-anxiety drug or antidepressant or what have you, that's going to like 
get rid of my superpower, right? And I think that 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 stigma is still often in in our society where we think that we're going to lose the thing that has led us to achieve. And it almost pushes on that dread even more and prevents people from, again, finding different ways to cope with uh, the things that we're talking about. That's a really good point. And I think it's worth here um, clearing up some of that stigma to the best of our ability. A good therapist is not going to turn off your drive. They're going to help you channel it and they're going to help you look out for the other side of that same coin and to try to keep it more of a gift than a curse. And at the very least to be aware of when it might become a curse and to have practices to help you manage through that. Um, SSRIs, it's the one medication that I know enough that I can speak to with some authority. Uh, it depends. There's nothing about an SSRI that's going to dampen your motivation when the drugs work for people. They're absolutely phenomenal. They don't change you as a person. They literally just help to lessen the anxiety or depression. They're truly miracle drugs when they work. However, they don't work for everyone. And some people experience side effects. And one of the side effects is weight gain. And if you're an athlete, sometimes that will hurt your performance. Another side effect for some people is um, fatigue and sleepiness. If you're trying to start a company, that might hurt your performance. So there's trade-offs, but the point is that in the hands of a good physician, they can help you navigate those trade-offs and, and find something that works if you are experiencing enough distress where you think that medication might make sense. Um, another thing that is, is related, I think, in many ways is... Um, is just this like, I, the metaphor that I use is like a screwdriver. And I think that the key to really good performance, right? If you're listening and you're an athlete and you're doing a 20 minute FTP test on the bike, or if you're an entrepreneur that is like starting a company, or if you're a writer that's just cranking, my guess is that some of you will have this experience of feeling like you are just tightening a screw and you're just tightening it and tightening it and tightening it. You're just winding that thing up. And it feels kind of good to tighten that screw, but it also kind of hurts. But that's part of what makes it feel good is like there's some pain involved and you're just tightening it and tightening it and tightening it. And that can lead to breakthrough performance, but that's also very similar to the feeling of anxiety, OCD, or depression, where that screw is intrusive thoughts or feelings of despair or meaninglessness, and you don't know how to release from it. All you know how to do is tighten it. And um, my guess, I don't know enough about the neurochemistry, but my guess is like if you were to image two people's brains, one tightening the screw in the productive direction, the other tightening it in the destructive direction you probably see brain activity in the same exact parts of their brain. Yeah, that's interesting. I think you're probably spot on there. And I think that gets like, again, the kind of nuance of this. One of the things that really, you know, struck home to me, because again, I've struggled with this, is I remember there was, um, I think it was a 2009 paper uh, by Adrian Fetter on, I forget the title, but it was, it, it was something on resilience, like the psychology or psychobiology of resilience. And, and in there, um, outlining the research, they said, you know, resilient individuals 
are really good at activating the stress response and then like efficiently turning it off. And then there was other work, I forget where it came from, but I was reading at this time, again, this was several years ago, that it essentially said that we often think of like tough, resilient, you know, high performers as the people who always compete. I think this was in the book uh, Top Dog, who are always on, always competing. But the reality is the top performers are often, according to the research, the ones who can flip on and off the competition switch. And it's often our insecurity that keeps us competing or keeps us in that competition, that that striving mode when we know don't need to be there. And the example I like to use is, you know, um, it's the person who doesn't have to compete at Monopoly or like Jenga or whatever with their child at family game time, but can flip that switch when they're on the athletic field and be a monster at competing that does does great. Now, there are exceptions, right? The Michael Jordans of the world, who are, seem like they always compete in everything. But generally, what happens if you're always in that, like, always competing, always pursuing, always striving mode, like, eventually, that's going to catch up to you because you can't turn it off. So you're more likely to feel that, like, burned out and depressive state, as Brad outlined earlier, because, like... Your, your switch is always, always on, which we know, you know, taking outside of the athletic field, one of the things that contributes to burnout the most in the workplace is when you, you don't disengage from the work at some point, right? You're always answering emails. You're always replying to things. You're always doing something even at 10 o'clock at night when you should be, you know, going to bed or seven o'clock when you should be eating dinner with your family. Your mind is always on the work, So we often think that, oh, you know, if I give up, if I switch off, like that means that I'm never going to be able to turn things back on. But the the research tends to back up that for the vast majority of people, if you can train your, your way to do that, you don't lose that competitiveness. You don't lose that motivation. In fact, you probably have a higher level of it because like you're not just digging a hole at all times um, with always being on. Yeah, I think the other um, disorder that is related to performance in this way for many people that we haven't brought up that we probably should have in opening is um, substance use disorders or colloquially addictions. And I think here you see this all the time in ultra marathoning, where like nine out of 10 people doing ultra marathons are in recovery, uh, whether it's cocaine, opioids, alcoholism. And why? Because A, I think you numb some of that intrusive thinking that drives addiction. And B, there's a certain level of addiction that is required for good performance in ultra marathoning, addiction to the sport, addiction to pain. Um, That feeling of just like getting wasted, even though you know you're going to feel like shit and even though you know it hurts, but you just can't stop. That's probably what winning a 100 mile ultra marathon feels like. You're just getting wasted out there on the course, knowing how terrible it's going to feel and how much it hurts, but you can't stop. And here, I think there's even another layer of nuance, which is tools like throwing yourself into performance work really well until they get in the way. So for example... Getting addicted to running ultra marathons is a lot better than alcoholism or cocaine or opiate addiction. Throwing yourself into work 
after a loved one has passed away is a lot better for some people than grief that might lead to suicidal thinking. So those things work, but then eventually for most people, they stop working. And that's when we ultimately need to face some of these deeper fears and feelings, again, often with the help of a therapist, a friend, a coach, a community member, some combination of all those to find some peace and freedom. Uh, so there's just levels and levels of nuance here, right? Because again, I think of the person in recovery, like if, if I came to you, Steve, and I was like, you know, really on the edge of losing my life due to substance abuse, encouraging me to take up ultras might be the best thing in the world that ever happened to me. And maybe I'll run ultras happily for the rest of my life. But at some point, whatever demon was driving the addiction and is now driving the ultra performance might creep up on me. And then I still won't have the tools to address it. Yeah, I call that like our tendency to like replace, right? Where where we've replaced kind of a vice with something that still fills that void, but is, you know, societally or culturally better. Um, and that's a good tactic to get out of the hole for anything. But ultimately, we have to kind of deal with the thing and develop tools to deal with the thing, because if we don't, as you pointed out, we're, we're still vulnerable. And I think that gets us all the way back to the where we started this conversation, which is like often the tools that we use to, you know, uh, deal with the thing in endurance sport are like throwing ourselves into the work, like, you know, yeah. going obsessive, all that stuff. And I should say back out, not just endurance sport, but like same in the workplace, same in education, like, you know, to deal with uncertainty of like, oh my gosh, my future is on the line. What do high school kids and their parents often encourage them to do? Like go all in and take 55, you know, test prep courses and AP courses and like everything to get this illusion of control um, that just isn't there instead of like what we probably should be dealing with is like the reality of like, hey, it's okay if we don't like get in your top college choice and life isn't going to end and like, you know, give them the tools to navigate some of these uh, situations instead of, you know, going all in. So I'm going to attempt to to close this up and, and to bring it together. The thought that I have is you can, and this is an oversimplification for sure, but I think it's still really valuable and I think it's thematically true. You could imagine there's this chemical potion of juice or fuel or whatever liquid or gas you want to imagine. And, and some people have this potion. And sometimes the potion goes into the, the left tube. And when it's going to the left tube, it leads to incredible performance. The will to control, the will to master, addiction, obsession, identity fusion, all these things that are associated with achievement, innovation, changing the world. That same fuel and that same potion sometimes goes down the plumbing in the right direction. And when you go to the right, then the result is anxiety, depression, obsessive compulsive disorder, for some maybe even mania. Connection's not as clear there, but there's some research that shows that bipolar disorder and performance also go hand in hand. So you get down that road and suddenly it's really, really, really destructive. And 
I think handling this as skillful as we can, which is an ongoing practice for everyone, is to be aware of what pathway that potion is going towards. And when it's in the direction that you want it to be, using it. And when it's not, throwing your hands up and saying, I need help and learning a whole different set of tools for how to deal with it than when it's going in the other direction. I like it. I'm going to I'm going to simplify with Steveisms here. I call it um it's okay to fall in love with the thing or pursuit, but don't marry it. And I think the closer you are to like marrying the activity, the more fragile you become and the more you have to like pop your head out of the water and be like, okay, am I at the edge? And sometimes you got to get really close to that edge, but it's imperative that you have the tools to like zoom back out and bring yourself back from, you know, that, that kind of narrow world that, you know, loving and almost being married sometimes puts you in. And especially when those, um, when the tools are completely different, right? Because like ultimately the tool the therapeutic tool that is most helpful for most people for the big three non-psychotic disorders, so anxiety, depression, and OCD, is some part and parcel of just acceptance. Like, this sucks. I'm not going to fight it. I'm going to get help when I need it to feel safe. I'm not going to problem solve. I'm not going to do anything other than sit with it. I'm not going to try to make it go away. I'm not going to pretend that I like it. It's just going to suck. And it's part of being a human. And I have enough resources and support where this will pass. Well, guess what? If you're training for a race and you start running off pace or you're starting a company and things go to shit, you do the exact opposite. You don't just say, I'm just going to accept this and just sit here and let my company go up in flame or let the gold medal fall through the cracks. No, what do you do? You try to fix, you try to problem solve, you try to muscle your way through. So the tools are almost diametrically opposed, which makes it like even harder to get right. And I think that's why, as I said, like I, I'm not sure there's ever a getting this right. I think you just get more and more skillful with how you handle it. And perhaps the best that we can hope for is to more easily be able to identify which path our fuel is going down. And then to know what kind of resources we need, depending on how we answer that question and what kind of tools we want to use. And that is why it's so imperative for everyone, but especially if you're a striver and pusher in anything, to have people surrounding you that can help you like a see those tools, develop those tools, but also tell you like when you're headed off off the path, because it's so hard to do alone. Yeah, love it. All right. I think that that's a wrap for today. Um, thank you all for listening uh, to this this conversation. Hopefully we were able to unpack this nuanced topic in a way that was valuable. If you are new to the podcast, thanks for listening. If you're an old timer, we appreciate you. If you like this show and you found this episode interesting, please share it with a friend. It's one of the best ways to help us grow this podcast, this community of people that are interested in performance and sustainable excellence in an evidence-based and nuanced way. Uh, So yes, please do share the podcast. That is our ask. Just message it to a friend or two. Let them know that they'd enjoy it. Hopefully it gives you all something to talk about in your own intimate communities. And with that, we'll see you next Wednesday.